0: Hello, I'm Dr. Naushira Pandya. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University. I'm also the project director of the South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Grant. This is a series of podcasts that we've developed, and it's my great pleasure now to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Meenakshi Patel. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Geriatrics at Wright State University in the Boonshoft School of Medicine. She's a board-certified geriatrician and internist with an active ambulatory and long-term care practice in Ohio. In addition, she has an active research program ongoing with her practice and has been a member of the AMDA Board of Directors participated in several key committees, and also teaches in the AMDA core curriculum. She has contributed to several clinical practice guidelines and is a well-known national speaker. So welcome, Dr. Patel. It's a real pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Pandya.
0: So we chose the topic of heart failure in older adults, which I see is a significant clinical problem. And could you perhaps start us off with the talking about the prevalence of heart failure in older adults?
1: Absolutely. So about 6.5 million adults in the U.S. have heart failure. Um, if you look at people over the age of 65, we would see that about 4.5 million of those are in that age
0: group. So that's a, that's a significant problem. Is it more common in the institutionalized older adults?
1: Absolutely. So heart failure occurrence doubles in the age group of 75 to 84 as compared to 65 to 74, and then more than quadruples in those over the age of 85. If we look at folks who are in our long-term care space, the average age would be over the age of 80. And so clearly it becomes a more significant problem. And it's significant enough that CMS actually had heart failure readmissions to the hospital as one of the first things that we worked on in terms of trying to prevent 30-day readmissions for heart failure.
0: Yes, you're correct. That's still a a big initiative going on. And many health systems are gauged by their performance in this measure.
1: And the reason for that is more than 80% of heart failure hospitalizations occur in those over the age of 65, and it accounts for almost 90% of heart failure deaths in this age group.
0: So that was my next question. In terms of older adults, what is the impact of heart failure in terms of their functional status, mobility, and indeed mortality? Sure. So...
1: Clearly, as heart failure worsens, uh, mobility decreases because the founding symptoms of heart failure include breathlessness, fatigue, swelling in the lower extremities, uh, because either of reduced cardiac output and or elevated intracardiac pressures. I see. Mobility is impacted mortality, um, as I said, is higher in this age group. In fact, 90% of heart failure deaths are over the age of 65. And in terms of morbidity, these folks tend to be the ones that end up getting institutionalized because of poor functional status.
0: Thank you. So my own clinical impression has been that Once older adults have heart failure, you can predict a series of gradual uh, steps of decline, uh, recurrent hospitalizations, and indeed reduced quality of life. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, absolutely. As, uh, As the heart failure worsens over time, there is definitely a reduced quality of life. And intervention does seem to help. Improve quality of life and improve symptoms. So, there are some things that we can do to try to help improve quality of life and functional status.
0: That's excellent. Um, before we, uh, and I want to talk to you in more detail about that, uh, I first want to address the topic uh, of uh, recognition of heart failure. I'm really a clinician at heart, and um, I think you and I both know the importance of actually doing a good bedside assessment. Of patients, but I find that it's not as easy to diagnose heart failure in some older adults, and symptoms may not be so typical. What is your that's, experience?
1: That's absolutely correct. So the most common or typical symptoms are exertional shortness of breath, fatigue, um, orthopnea, which is try you know sleeping on more pillows than normal. Or waking up in the middle of the night, feeling short of breath. Those are more of the typical symptoms along with leg edema. However, our older folks are not exerting as much. They have a more sedentary lifestyle. They Mm -hmm. also have issues with decreased mental acuity, confusion, lethargy, irritability, anorexia. All of these can also actually be symptoms of heart failure. And so it becomes more challenging to identify symptoms of heart failure in the older adult because these are more common symptoms of other conditions that they have as well.
0: That's so true. And I find that some of our colleagues, or, and especially practitioners who are new to taking care of frail older adults, may look at any case of edema as potentially heart failure. And so I wonder if you could speak to that. And secondly, uh, the issue of weight. Obviously, some people with heart failure will gain weight, but I know that as it progresses and a cachectic state develops, there may even be weight loss. So I'm wondering if you could address those two areas.
1: Absolutely. So not all edema is heart failure, for sure. As we get older, we also have venous insufficiency, The venous valves don't work as well as they did when we were younger. And as I said, um, the older adult might not be as active. And so you see a lot of dependent edema secondary to venous insufficiency. If you start treating that edema with diuretics, you might create more of a problem with internal dehydration, so to speak. And so not all edema is heart failure. Heart failure, um, the second question was... Uh, yes, I
0: was alluding to weight loss because sometimes loss. you see Correct. almost a cachectic state. card, right. right. So
1: towards the end stage of heart failure, they do uh, become fairly cachectic. And at that point, it really is that most of our treatments have been tried and failed, and uh, you almost have to go down the palliative course. So you can certainly see weight loss towards the end stages of heart failure, but most of the time with an exacerbation of heart failure, you will see weight gain um, in the typical setting.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, So if you saw a patient and you suspected heart failure, what would be your approach to a diagnostic evaluation? Okay.
1: So speaking specifically uh, to the geriatric population, either outpatient or inpatient, uh, workup may be a little bit different, but I think you could use the same process in both settings. So first of all, with the definition of heart failure, you have now three types of heart failure. We were used to having two types of heart failure. and Now there's a third one that's inserted in the middle.
0: Oh, So the story is more complicated now. Yes, the story (laughs) gets
1: more complicated. So you have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, The short form is HEF-REF. And symptoms and signs may be similar to that with the other heart failures. The difference is, that the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 40% in this population. Then you have have half mid-range ejection fraction. So you call it HFMREF, so mid-range ejection fraction, and that's an ejection fraction between 40 and 49%. In these folks, you will see also elevated levels of BNP And at least one additional criteria, either relevant structural heart disease and or diastolic dysfunction. So you would either see left ventricular hypertrophy, left atrial enlargement and or diastolic dysfunction. I see. And then you have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And in that setting, you have all the same things except that the ejection fraction is more than 50%. Okay, so it's divided up by the ejection fraction. And um, in the mid-range and in the preserved ejection fraction, you would see more diastolic dysfunction. So how would you know what the ejection fraction is and whether or not there is diastolic dysfunction? So a 2D echocardiogram gives you most of this information. And that's a simple bedside test that can be done either as an outpatient or even in the nursing home setting, most of our um, ambul- i mean, most of our mobile X-ray companies will be able to provide us with a mobile 2D echocardiogram. So that's, uh, I think that that helps us to de- determine what type of heart failure we're dealing with, and then secondly, a BNP, which is the natriuretic peptide test will tell us if we have an acute exacerbation of a heart failure or if you're kind of concerned you know is this an exacerbation of COPD versus is this heart failure it might help you differentiate between the two.
0: You mean sorting out a patient who might have developed acute or a change in their breathlessness?
1: Yes in the respiratory or Mm -hmm. a respiratory decompensation.
0: Okay and where do you uh, I think the plain old chest X-ray fits in.
1: So um, a chest X-ray is also quite valuable. However, sometimes you have uh, readings from radiologists who don't have the whole clinical picture. And so interestingly, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Jump, uh, calls it a pneumonia, which (laughs) Defined as a pneumonia by the radiologist. However, the clinical picture is not suggestive of a pneumonia. There's no fever or white count or sputum production. Um, and, you know, the, the primary symptom is shortness of breath. Or um, In that setting, it might be more related to heart failure than a pneumonia. So the x-ray is valuable, but you have to have a clinical uh, case along with it to interpret what, what the x-ray is telling you.
0: And uh, my, my understanding is a chest x-ray may not always show the curly B lines or the engorged veins or maybe a small pleural effusion. You might actually see patchy infiltrates in a case of heart failure, which might lead you up the path of pneumonia.
1: Correct. And that's exactly what I was talking about. So when you see those <laughs> patchy infiltrates, you uh, it's not necessarily a pneumonia. It could be heart failure.
0: That's uh, so um, appropriate to, you know, be aware of these issues. What do you think about following a BNPs once you've made a, established a diagnosis of heart failure?
1: So some clinical trials have used BNP as a surrogate for assessing efficacy of treatment and So one could potentially follow BNPs. However, it is an expensive test and it's not necessary to do like weekly BNPs per se. But if someone is having issues, you're starting treatment, they're only partially responding or not responding, you might get another BNP to see if you are still dealing with heart failure or if there's some other complication that is creating a problem.
0: That's great. That seems to be a sensible approach.
1: Yes. Also with BNP, there there are two types that you can order. You can just order pro-BNP or you can order the NT pro-BNP. And really the NT pro-BNP is the more sensitive test in terms of heart failure. And in fact, some of heart failure treatments can increase proBNP, but they reduce anti pro
0: So interesting. So well, That leads me uh, to the discussion about therapy. How would you systematically approach a pharmacotherapy in a patient with heart failure, given, of course, that there are now three types of heart failure? Correct. Right.
1: So... We'll go with the one which has the least amount of uh, information available to us in terms of treatment options which is the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. For the most part to date, uh, treatment options include diuretic therapy to offload the fluid overload. There are some recent studies that show that some of the SGLT2 inhibitors may be effective in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. They're effective in a mixed variety of heart failure patients. So you could uh, kind of extrapolate that to say that we could try that in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But really there's not much else available to us right now in terms of that group. So it's mostly related to diuretic therapy. You could consider um, SGLT2 inhibitors.
0: I may uh, jump in. I think uh, with diastolic um, heart failure, yes, there are so few actively validated treatments, but it occurs in people who are obese, people who have diabetes or history of poorly controlled hypertension. So it seems to me that a preventive strategy in middle age and as the person ages is a better approach to try and actually prevent diastolic heart failure. What's your opinion?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right about that. So preventive um, therapy by well-controlled comorbid conditions such as diabetes, overweight, and hypertension will help reduce the risk of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And interestingly, the incidence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is almost as high as the incidence of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So we see a fair amount of people with this condition and the morbidity and mortality is similar to that or even worse sometimes than that with reduced ejection fraction. So it behooves us uh, to identify early on the risk factors and manage them the best we can prior to this condition developing. You're absolutely right.
0: Great. And now what would your approach be? uh, What's your sort of pharmacological algorithm uh, to a patient, uh, let's say, with uh, heart failure with reduced EF?
1: I'm going to speak just briefly about the mid-range ejection oh, okay. fraction and then we'll go to the reduced ejection fraction, which really has the most data. So the heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, which is um, an LVEF between 40 and 49 percent, we just recently got an approval for the ARB slash NI, uh, which is the valsartan acubitral Combination. Had approval for this condition for the mid-range ejection fraction, and so we have one more medicine that we can use in addition to the diuretic uh, therapies that are available to us in this, uh, you know, in this condition. And again, SGLT two inhibitors may be used in this setting as well.
0: So that's so some extra can... ammunition. Uh, that we yes. have with this mid-range
1: failure. With this mid-range, correct. So now we can switch gears and talk about the reduced ejection fraction. And again, you know, it depends on symptomatology and staging of the heart failure. But the initial approach is usually to start a beta blocker and either an ACE inhibitor an angiotensin receptor blocker or the combination of angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibitor. Uh, So you would use one of those, the ACE, the ARB, or the ARNI. And really, um, the angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibitor showed in the paradigm study that they had a very significant impact on uh, mortality as well as rehospitalization. And so that may be our uh, better option. So if the patient is dry, then the beta blocker is better tolerated. But if the patient is wet, then start with the ASR arb
0: So what about the uh, initiation of diuretics? Um, where does that fit in?
1: Right. So if someone is very fluid overloaded and very symptomatic. You do want to decompress them and um, initiate therapy with diuretics. And then as they're getting better, introduce a, a beta blocker um, along with the ace or ARNI. The limiting factor sometimes, especially in more advanced heart failure is the blood pressure. And so as people get better or as you're up titrating the ACE or you want to start down titrating the diuretics. So as people are getting better, remember that a low blood pressure can mean that they're starting to get internally dehydrated and you need to back off on the diuretic. And that's really be, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face in the long-term care setting is that when folks go to the hospital they're aggressively di- diuresed and um, they come to us maybe on large doses of diuretics. And then it's up to us to start backing off on those diuretics. So diuretics are helpful when you're fluid overloaded, but they they shouldn't be continued at that level for maintenance therapy.
0: I often see the practice in in our post-acute long-term care setting of you know, symptoms of exacerbation of heart failure leading to just a few days of an increase in a diuretic dose, but then no significant change in therapy. Correct,
1: correct. And so when they come to the rehab center, I would say that uh, patients slash residents with heart failure who've been admitted for an exacerbation of heart failure should be followed very closely closely. Um, in the rehab unit, and active adjustments in therapy should occur in the next two to three weeks while they are there to try to get them to an optimal treatment regimen.
0: Very important. What do you feel uh, is the role of spironolactone and digoxin in the spectrum of therapies?
1: Yeah, so as we go down the uh, algorithm, so the next option will be... uh, the MRAs or the spironolactone. Um, and when you add that, just remember that if you already have an ACE, ARB, or ARNI on board and you add spironolactone, you will um, have to watch the electrolytes because both of these agents can increase potassium. So the loop diuretics, for example, furosemide or torsemide will um lower potassium, but these agents will increase potassium. So one should be monitoring electrolytes fairly carefully uh, throughout titrating and adjusting therapeutic uh, options. Digoxin, there's just one single study. um, It's called the DIG study that showed Mm -hmm. that it does reduce the risk of hospitalization, but really doesn't have much of an impact on mortality.
0: And we often, uh, apologies, we often find um, some of our patients, uh, even those we see in the clinic, have been on digoxin for many years, and they are also afraid of stopping it because it's an important, quote, heart medication.
1: Yes. Uh, So digoxin has a very narrow therapeutic window. It has a significant amount of adverse events. So it's it's really not a very important part of this therapy therapeutic algorithm, and really you should save it for those who are very tachycardic, and you're not able to raise the dose of beta blockers. You could Let's perhaps see. add uh, digoxin into the regimen, but there are many other options that are available to us. So as such, it wouldn't be. A main part of
0: therapy. You wouldn't uh, think of digoxin, let's say, for the reduced EF uh, heart failure patients necessarily. You would think of other therapies first.
1: Correct. Correct. Thank you. So, I mean, it could be one of the options. Like I said, if we're having issues with uh, tachycardia, uh, there is a newer agent available that actually works fairly well in that setting, and that's Um And that also predominantly works by lowering the heart rate. So that may be another option. But prior to that, you would consider the SGLT2 inhibitors. They've become um, kind of, they have stepped up in the algorithm, so to speak. So after ACE, ARB, ARNI, Beta blockers and MRAs, one might start thinking about an SGLT2 inhibitor to try to help manage um, heart failure. Even so,
0: in so persons.
1: Someone with diabetes, it's kind of a no brainer. Um, but even with those who don't have diabetes, that may be an option. Go ahead.
0: So even in persons without diabetes, an SGLT2 inhibitor is a Of consideration. That is correct. So interesting. Yes. Now, I wanted to now uh, talk about um, consideration of palliative care and end-of-life discussions in people with heart failure, because we know it is a terminal condition, and, of course, management is improving. But when would you initiate that discussion with your patients?
1: So... Someone who has had uh, more than three admissions to the hospital in the year for exacerbation of heart failure is someone that you should certainly talk to about palliative care, goals of life, goals of care, and consideration for stepping down the aggressiveness of approach. There are also other medications that you can use to optimize therapy. Some of those would be hydralazine, uh, which is an afterload reducer. Um, You can use isosorbide. There is also a newer agent that has uh, been approved in the last year, and that is Vericiguat, V-E-R-I-C-I-G-U-A-T, And um, that's a guanyl cyclase activator. So it bypasses the nitric oxide system. And it can, in their study, they added it on to standard of care. So you could have already been on an ARNI and a beta blocker and diuretics. And this was in addition to that. And the number needed to treat in their trial was 24 to prevent one event in that one year. So it's a fairly impressive data. It starts at 2.5 milligrams daily and you titrate up to 10 milligrams daily. So we have so many medical options that we can help our folks with right there in the nursing facility without having to go to the hospital. And so I I would certainly say that there would be, there should be a good discussion of palliative care And end of life care, but more so palliative care to try to keep folks in the nursing facility or in place in their homes rather than sending them to the hospital.
0: Thank you. That really puts everything into perspective. Dr. Patel, I want to thank you so much for this enlightening discussion on heart failure. You've certainly brought us up to speed and provided us with a lot of new information to consider. So thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Pandya, for having me.